If you brought a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to the book of Isaiah? And uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. If you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the racks there in front of you. And uh, you can follow along that way or up on the screen. And, and if you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. Be sure and take one with you when you leave today if you don't own a Bible. I would love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand so that you can read it yourself and, and investigate it and get to know more. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. Uh, but before we do that, uh, a detail. Uh, you've heard us talking over the last probably 10 months about the potential for a new building for New Hope and that there may be a relocation in our future um, as God continues to grow this church. And we said we would commit to giving you regular updates uh, as, as we had new information. Well, here's the new information for you. I have no new information, okay? <laughs> Maybe that's not necessarily new, but um, what we do know is that God's continuing to grow the church, and we see this 10, 12, 14% a year growth going on, and many, many visitors coming into the church, and some stay and decide to make new hope their church. So over the course of the three services, we continue to see God growing this church, So he's laid a word on my heart. I probably would be the same for you, and the word is prepare. We don't know exactly when God's going to move us or how he's going to do it, but this building is space limited. So short of adding a fourth service, we're going to have to at some point make a move to a new facility. If that's in the next year, year and a half, two years, we don't know. But at some point, I'm probably going to be standing on the platform and saying, hey, we're not 550 a week now. Now we're 700 a week, and then maybe 750. So Here's what we want to do as leadership. Uh, We want to prepare for what God's doing. So what we've decided is that you can begin giving to a building fund if you would choose to do that, if if God has laid it upon your heart. So in the envelope that's in the pew racks that you use for your regular giving here, there's a category called the Building Improvement Fund. That is actually the building fund, which has right now about $51,000 in it. And people have been continuing to give towards that for the purpose of a future relocation. So when we have more information, I'll be thrilled to share it with you. But until then, we wait because we said we didn't want to get ahead of God, right? So we're going to be patient. And when God gives us more, um, we'll act on that. Here's um, my final point on that. As you choose to give, especially if it gets into end of year giving, please don't neglect the general fund. Make sure that um, this is giving that you do up and beyond your regular giving because we still have the ongoing expenses to meet. Okay, I'm ready to step into Isaiah 9, and I would just love to pray with you before we do that. Can you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we step now into this period of time where we want to focus on your word and what you have to say. And so we invite your Holy Spirit to be our guide, that you would be our leader our teacher, that you would instruct and that you would give us insight into things that we cannot see on our own. So we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would brood over this auditorium and help us to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Does anybody happen to know the most popular Christmas song of all time? Even today in 2014, one particular Christmas carol rises above every other. <laughs> you messed me up. You're all saying different ones. Did anybody say joy to the world? Okay. Score. <laughs> Laura Lee. I, and I saw hands over there. Okay. 
<laughs> it doesn't count. She got advanced notes, right? Okay. So um, Joy to the World, matter of fact, rises way above all other Christmas songs published. The remarkable thing is, it was never written to be a Christmas song. Who knew? Isaac Watts in 1710 wrote these words. Look with me up on the screen at the first couple phrases. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Did Jesus come the first time as a king? Kind of, but came as a humble baby in a manger. What does Isaac Watts know that other people have missed? And I'm not diminishing the fact this is a great Christmas song, but this is actually written as what's known as a millennial song, meaning the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus after the second coming. I'll explain that more as we move forward. I want to to help you understand what's going on here. Isaac Watts knew something much, much bigger is going on. While the birth announcement of Jesus was huge and monumental, there's more going on to the story. Let me take you to a Christmas passage that's part of what we're going to talk about this morning that'll help you understand this. The angel speaking to Mary, Luke chapter 1, and specifically verses 31 through 33. Look at what's being said. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. Now there's prophecy right there. There's a promise. It hadn't happened yet. It's going to happen. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now that's the first coming. That's the arrival of Jesus. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He will be megas. Well, there's two components going on there. First coming, second coming. These are really distinct phrases which Mary immediately, as a person growing up in Israel, would have identified and understood. These are phrases that were familiar to everyone living at this period of time who have Jewish ancestry in their background. This is like an American knowing the Pledge of Allegiance. These phrases are super familiar. What has this angel done? Using this prophecy, he has linked something from the ancient, ancient past, from the time way back during the reign of King David. Look with me up on the screen, 2 Samuel 7, 16. God speaking to King David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. How is that possible? David is a man who died hundreds of years before. What is this being, what is, it, what is this saying to us? Well, specifically, according to this prophecy from this angel and from what God said to David himself, there's one who would be coming who would serve as a king who has a right to rule. Now, we understand that he came once and he offered his kingdom, but men nailed him to a cross. And then they threw him in a hole in the ground and put a huge boulder over the hole, hoping that they had done away with him. But you can't put the king of creation who spoke rocks into existence behind rocks and not expect him to come out, right? But that's another story. That's that's not where we're going this morning. While on earth, Jesus made a promise. And his promise was that he will return, that he will come back one day. So let me ask you a question. 
Do you this morning long for the return of the king? Some don't. Depending on where you're at and what stage in life you're at, generally people over 35 will say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Generally people who are younger are saying, I'm willing to wait a little while. I got a life to live. I want to live it out. But have you, let me ask it this way, maybe this is a better way to ask it. Have you seen enough disease? Have you seen enough dying? Have you seen enough war? Is there an ache within you for things to be better? Do you survey our world and long for someone to fix it? Many parents, regardless of what age they are, will look upon the things of our world, the course of the events of our world, and look on society and say, if it's like this now, what's it going to be like for the next generation? What are they going to face? Regardless of where you're at, most people would look upon the course of the world events and say, I want riots to stop. I want peace. I want justice. I want cures for disease. I want wars to be over. I don't want to open up tomorrow's paper and see that one more media journalist has been executed by a terrorist in Iran. I just don't want to see it anymore. I want it to end. This is the sad truth. This will never happen on this earth until the king returns. The one whose right it is to rule, to bring peace on earth. So until then, we're going to continue to struggle with the outcome of the fall. So question, do you long for the return of the king this morning? I think you will after we look at Isaiah 9 together. And we're not talking about end time stuff, the ugly stuff of tribulation period. We're looking at end time stuff, the promise of what's in store, the great thing. So let me take you to Isaiah chapter 9 and understand the setting that's going on here. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 18 and Isaiah chapter 9, you're looking at things that were written at the same time. There's, there's a parallel relationship here. So here's the background. And understand, this would be like Christopher Columbus sitting down and writing things about President Ronald Reagan 700 years in the future, writing specific details. That's why this is called prophecy. Now, here's the background. There's a king on the throne when Isaiah sits down to write this, and the king's name is Ahaz, and he is wicked and rotten to the core. Matter of fact, God says, never has a more evil king served on the throne of Israel. Ahaz is this kind of a guy. He literally locked the doors to the church. He put chains on the temple. He barred the doors shut and bolted them so that no one would worship the one true God and they wouldn't have a place to go do it. And when the one true God is not worshipped, false worship sneaks in. And Satan brought false worship of the God, small g, Moloch, M-O-L-E-C-H. Moloch was the God, they thought, that demanded the worship of him by the sacrifice of children. So literally, Ahaz built a statue to Moloch, which was a furnace. And I won't go into the gory details. You can read 2 Kings chapter 18 yourself, but just know this. They sacrificed children. The children of Israel were sacrificed at this statue. This was the setting in Israel in 700 B.C. 
And that's what Isaiah is writing about in chapter 7 and chapter 8. But there's an abrupt shift that takes place. There's this bursting forth from this darkness and gloom when you come to Isaiah chapter 9. And he begins giving a promise, a prophecy that God had revealed to him. This is the way it starts out. You see verse 1 on the screen. But there will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish, meaning Israel at that period of time. And then verse 2 says this, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. See, Isaiah saw it all in one continuous picture. He didn't understand, like many of the prophets at that period of time, there's a huge time gap. He's just being faithful to write what God had showed him. Now we come to verse 6, and this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. See, he sees the whole picture from birth to ruling king. He doesn't give any hint of a date because he doesn't know the date. But what has he just done? In Isaiah chapter 7, you'll be familiar with this if you've ever read a Christmas card. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. Behold, the virgin will conceive and will bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7. He's linked that with Isaiah 9. Isaiah's written about the same thing. There's an identification marker going on here that this one is going to be a righteous king like King David, like the Davidic ruler that God spoke of many years before. So let's look at this birth announcement. This initial announcement is a child will be born. God will give us a son. Now the second line is really emphasizing when it says God has given us a son. This is a work of God doing some giving. God's going to give something. Now, we don't give by accident, do we, church? It's not a coincidence when we give something. Christmas is coming. You're not stumbling into Christmas, I hope. You're giving intentionally, right? You're going out, you're preparing for it in advance. Well, that's what we're told. God's giving a son to us. He does this intentionally. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. The first part of the sentence says, a child will be born to us. What has he just done? He's accentuated Jesus' humanity, that he's got to come as a human, Think back to our study in Hebrews, if you were here. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but who has been tempted in every way, just as we have been tempted. Well, he's accentuating the humanity of this one. He's coming as a child, so he's born as a child, but there's this parallel style, beautiful in the Hebrew language. A child will be born, a son will be given. It's very poetic in the way that it's written. What does that mean, a son will be given to us? This is God's gift. Now think of the verses that you've learned, especially if you've grown up in church, from the New Testament. Think John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. It's all part of the giving. It's consistency of the Bible. Look at 1 John 4.9. God has sent His only begotten Son. This is part of God giving. So a Son will be given to us implies something. It implies deity. God has to have something to give it. 
It has to have existed before. This is something that God has. So this will be enough for some of you to chew on for the rest of the time that you're here, probably through the rest of the day. God, the Son, became Jesus. In other words, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, always was, always existed before and became Jesus. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen, Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So here's what we understand. Although he's born of a woman, he always was. He always existed before time. So God the Son became Jesus, taking the form of man. This is one of many places in the Bible where the Bible stands in direct contradiction to modern cults who will say that Jesus was just a man who became God-like. Well, the next time somebody comes knocking on your door and wants to show you that kind of heresy, you pull out Philippians 2, 6, and 7 and say, let me show you the truth. This is what God's Word says. But that's another story also. There's a big transition coming up now in verse 6. Really, really big. We've talked about this baby being born, the son given, but the next statement, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now he's beginning to talk about the second coming. What does that phrase mean? Maybe you've read that before and you wonder, what does that mean? Because Jesus didn't have a government when he was here. Now, this is a, a token. It's a phrase from the Hebrew language that we still use today. We use the sentence this way. He carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. What is that an emblem of? Well, even today, in the military and in law enforcement, we have uniforms in our world in which individuals have emblems on their shoulders of their uniform representing their government. That's coming right out of the Bible. Figuratively, it's speaking about the robe that the king will wear upon his shoulders as he governs over everything that he's responsible for. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this verse before. The truth of this single passage is about this king. Even though we wait for the realization of his reign, This one who's coming will be the greatest political ruler the world has ever seen. How do I know that? I can back that up from where we're moving forward. So Isaiah's looking at this roster of failed monarchs. Ahaz is in power, and he's seen all the other failed kings before him, and he's sitting in the rubble of Israel's destruction. But God gives him this vision of looking across the centuries to see this promised one who's coming. So just like Isaiah We see governments are necessary, but the reality is governments are so frustrating. Am I the only one? Are you tracking with me? I mean, they are. Isaiah felt the same thing. He recognizes governments are necessary, but what frustration. We still hope that each new administration coming into power is going to bring some kind of improvement because we recognize the failure of human solutions and we want it fixed. At the same time we're thinking this, we know something's got to be done to fix it, but it seems like as people are voted into office, they become incompetent, or they were. And it's going to sound like I'm against politicians. I'm not. Just hear me out on this. What we have today is a broken system in comparison to what King Jesus is going to bring. The the nation's leaders in Isaiah's time were completely incompetent in governing. 
What Scripture is about to show you is this one who will govern will govern perfectly. This is really consistent with Daniel. Daniel's another prophet who lived at this period of time. And, and he wrote this, Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14 is very important. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Sounds like a division of groups of people. He's looking forward to a time known as the millennial kingdom, which is still future in which Jesus will literally reign over this earth. And I am indeed talking about from Canada to Argentina, from the United States all the way around the globe to Israel, Russia, Persia, Afghanistan, all of it included. In that day, the government of the whole world will rest on his shoulders. When does this happen? People have asked in the Saturday night service and in the, in the previous service. This immediately happens after the second coming of Jesus. The seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, and then the millennial kingdom, which is set up here on planet earth. Scripture says, Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And it's talking about this literal earth. Let me move forward with you because we're told some specific things about this king who's going to reign at this period of time. We're given some titles in verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in the Bible, your name is associated with your core character. It's an identification of who you really are. So when names are used, they're very, very significant. What's this first name? Wonderful Counselor. Well, the word wonderful in the Bible means exceptional. That's kind of a, a generic term in the English language today, but it means rising above all others. He's this exceptional counselor beyond anything else that we've ever known. Meaning during this period of time, in contrast to King Ahaz, this king's going to be something with supernatural wisdom. That's what Isaiah is writing about. In the kingdom to come... People will be anxious to hear Jesus lead, teach, direct, guide, give counsel. Just think about it today, how it affects your life. His wisdom and his counsel is so limitless, it literally exudes from him and overflows from him right into us. He endues us with wisdom from above, according to the Bible. So he allows you to discern things you can't discern on your own. You know how I know that? It's a very simple test. Who here today would say that you know more about and you're closer to God than what you were a year ago at this time? That the evidence of the majority of the people in this auditorium would say that. Why? The truth of it is it's the Holy Spirit spilling over wisdom into your life, allowing you to understand God's words, to see things that you can't see on your own. When we look at Jesus during the time of the New Testament, we would say that's an individual who always knew the right thing to say. He always knew the appropriate thing to say in the appropriate moment. He knew when to reach out to someone, and he knew when to rebuke someone. Even his enemies said this about him. John seven forty six. never did a man speak the way this man speaks. They never see anything like it. What did Jesus say about himself? John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. See, there's no politician that could say that today, Right? It just doesn't, we'd laugh him off the stage. What politician would stand and say, I'm the source of all truth? It wouldn't survive. They would fail. They'd be kicked out of office, probably. People would say, what are you talking about? 
But this one could say that. So what we understand by these phrases, wonderful counselor, when he rules, there will be no uncertainty whatsoever because he's the ultimate answer to political confusion. Move forward with me to this next one, mighty God. This this particular kingdom, we understand, is going to be free from chaos because he is the mighty God. This is a military term. And as mighty warrior, he's going to accomplish everything that's been told of him. Especially if you read later today, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, the five verses before what we're looking at right now, you'll see some things that were told about that individual that no king on earth could possibly accomplish. What do we know about our God? We know this from 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not a God of confusion. He's the God of peace. That means when this one comes, he's going to bring order. He's going to bring order out of chaos. People will want to submit to his orderly system. Today, you and I can see the severe limitations of our legislative system. We live in a broken political system. Every government around the world could say that. There is no perfect government. Why? Because they can bring forward legislation, but here's where they lack They lack the ability to make people want to obey the law from their heart. Here's just an easy example for you. Let's just imagine that Michigan State Police went on strike tomorrow. How many people do you think would obey the speed limit laws on the highway? See, the speed limit signs would still be there, right? Our speedometers would still be working in our car. But if there's no one there to enforce the law, it's free game. People will drive at whatever speed they deem safe for themselves. So there's no desire to obey the law. That's because of sin. Because of sin is always straining against law and order. This is the way that Paul wrote it in Romans, Romans 7, 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So earthly legislation only goes so far, but it stops short because it doesn't provide the power. It doesn't provide the will to obey. But when Jesus comes to rule, he's going to bring order to the system because he's going to bring order out of chaos. So not only wonderful counselor guiding us in which way to go, but also as mighty God, he's going to energize you. That's a politician the world has never seen. Here's the next phrase, everlasting father. And many people are confused by that because they look at it and say, well, isn't that talking about God the father? How can that apply to Jesus? Well, everlasting father is a specific acclamation of Jesus for two reasons. First of all, we would agree Jesus is God, right? We've already shown that. Scripture says that Jesus is God. Therefore, as the second person of the Trinity, he has all the attributes of the Godhead. And eternality is included in that. So the title, Everlasting Father, is actually a Hebrew idiom. And this idiom isn't about the relationship of the members of the Trinity to each other. This idiom is about the relationship to time. Uh, Let me show you this. To get very specific, the Hebrew language says this literally means eternal father or father of eternity. Now, how is that consistent with who Jesus is? Well, first of all, this is a clear biblical reference to the fact that Jesus is the father of all things that were created. 
Look at what God said. Now reach back to your Hebrew study with me. We were back in this last year, Hebrews chapter 1, and see what God the Father says to God the Son. They're exchanging conversation here. God the Father says this, Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will be old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So because he is the father of eternity, how does that relate to you today? The last part of John 3.16, especially what we looked at a few moments ago about God giving us a gift, look at the last part of John 3.16. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life because he can give it because he's the father of eternity. So this is no ordinary person. He holds eternity in his hand from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Now, here's the last title, Prince of Peace. We would understand if we're believers in Jesus this morning, we're followers of Christ, we would say, well, he already is our peace. He brought me peace. It It was the purpose of purchasing peace that he came. He died on the cross to give me peace with God. That's all true. But there's another component to peace. If you're an individual who loves to write in your Bible, you're gonna wanna link this morning, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, Prince of Peace, with Genesis 49 because we're told something specific in Genesis 49.10. And I'll give you the word in just a minute to write down, but here's the setting. Jacob is a very old, old man. He's what's known as the father of Israel because he has these 12 sons from which the 12 tribes of Israel came. And he's at the end of his life, his death, and he brings his 12 sons into the room. And he begins pronouncing a prophecy, a promise of future things. He goes down the list of his sons, and by the time he gets to his son Judah, he makes a prophecy about Judah, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, because he descends from the line of Judah. The word Shiloh in the Hebrew language is actually the word tranquilizer. So if you're going to write down in your Bible above the word Shiloh, Jesus brings tranquility. He is the prince of peace, tranquil or tranquilizer. So in this case, he is the king who can bring peace. And the truth is, there has never been peace on earth in the sense that we think of it, in the way that we would want it, in the biblical definition. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. That's what characterizes our planet. So when the angel came and made this pronouncement to Mary saying, there's good news of great joy. Peace on earth is coming. Well, it's talking about when the king comes, he will bring peace on earth because he is the one alone who can bring it. Now, just to land this plane, let me give you a couple of the quality trademarks of the millennial kingdom, things that you will experience during this period of time, things that we know, according to Scripture, are promised to us. 
First of all, you can read about the coronation of Jesus as king over the earth in Revelation 19. And if you're here during the study of Revelation, you know we went into that in depth, but you can still see that online. You can pull it up on iTunes or on our website so you can know more about this. But Revelation 19 will help you with that. Here's one of the things that you're promised during the millennial kingdom. Satan will no longer rule. He will be imprisoned. Imagine a world without Satan coming against you. Who here would like to have one week in your life without the attack of Satan on you? Yeah, I'd take that. And take that times 52 weeks, times a 1,000 years, we're told, during this millennial kingdom. Satan will not be able to come against you. Psalm 72.7 says, during this period of time, there's going to be perfect labor, meaning economic abundance, enough for everybody. Isaiah 35 is very specific. It says there's going to be no need for rescue missions, no need for any relief agencies. And if you happen to be a physician this morning, you're going to have to get a new job because there will be no hospitals. There will be no need for it. Physical healing won't be necessary during this period of time because of the one who rules. So we're also told specifically as a result of the pristine conditions of the earth that Jesus is going to make happen here, primordial living conditions will be restored. The Bible says that someone who is 100 years old during that period of time will be like a child. And it also promises in Isaiah 36 that Jerusalem will become the center of the world for the worship of Jesus Christ. Is that the case today? Absolutely not. I mean, not even close to that. So there's a lot of promises of the things that are coming, but here it is boiled down to the basics. The Messiah's government in that time is going to be simple and uncomplicated. There will be no need for budget talks. There will be no discussion of a $17 trillion national debt. It just won't be because he will rule whose right it is to rule. So we come into this last part. I can't get into verse 7 the way that I want to because it's really where we're going next week when we talk about the promise that has been made to us. That's our Christmas series, the promise. But verse 7, very quickly, it says this. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, you may think I'm a freak, but here's a secret about me. Um, When I was 14, 15 years old, I grew to love Handel's Messiah. And if you love music, you know exactly what I'm talking about right away. And at this time of year, Handel's Messiah is performed probably all over the planet. But George Frederick Handel wrote one of the greatest pieces I think that's ever been written, Handel's Messiah. Well, he took the words for the Messiah right out of that verse that you just saw there. Verse 7 is talking about him reigning forever and ever and ever and ever. It will come to no end. As a matter of fact, Scripture is very consistent about that. Daniel said this himself, Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. David wrote about it, Psalm 145.13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, mentioning David at this point was intentional. Because there's reference to David in the prophecy to Mary and in the prophecy from Isaiah. Why do they keep bringing up King David? He's dead and gone. And yet we see his name repeated, and especially the throne of David. Most theologians I know agree on this point. There will be a reestablishment of David's kingdom. 
Let, let me show you again what the angel said to Mary. Look on the screen, Luke one thirty one. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Many places in the Bible indicate that God intends to resurrect King David to serve as vice regent who will rule over the nation of Israel. So Jesus as president, David as vice president, that's a ticket I would vote for. How about you? That sounds like a pretty good governing authority. I can see that happening. I can see what God is promising us here. And he's telling us specifically in the last part of that verse, last two words, this kingdom will be characterized, which you will experience as a believer in Jesus, will be characterized by justice and righteousness. That's not a kingdom merely of brute force. It's characterized by justice what are the things that you hear people longing for today? People say, I want wise counsel. I would like to have power to overcome my struggles. I would like to know that there is eternal life and that there's life beyond the grave. I would like to see peace. I want justice. I want righteousness. See, there's no accident, church, that every single one of the names that are mentioned here fulfill your deepest desire. That's why Jesus is called the desire of nations. Because the nations of the earth long for what he's about to bring. Now we're told very specifically to end this, how can there be this fulfillment of this promise? He said the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Simply stated, God Almighty is going to make sure it happens. You can be absolutely sure when you leave here this morning that an omnipotent God reigns behind this plan. And with zeal and determination and passion, he will bring it about. I am excited to be part of this. Can you pick up on that? I hope that you are too because it's in your future. This is what God is telling you is in your future. But the truth is, I don't deserve it. Before you get too pompous, neither do you. We don't. It's because of what he did that we get it. That's why we celebrated communion this morning. It's not just about the fact that he held up the bread and the cup and said, remember my body broken on the cross. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So think about Jesus' instructional prayer to the disciples. Master, tell us how to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It's the first thing he said to ask God for. You declare who he is, that he's holy, and the first thing you ask for is that his kingdom would come. Why? Because I'm tired of war. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of disease. See, Isaac Watts really got it. Joy to the world. The king has come. Let earth receive her king. So this Christmas, as you move forward, you hear that song playing on the radio, you sing part of it yourself, think of what you heard this morning that Isaac Watts wrote in 1710, joy to the world. He's coming one day. So I'm here to tell you this morning, as you go out these doors, you know for sure that as a follower of Christ, there is a day coming when you will see this earth as it was meant to be. What God intended originally for all of creation will be revealed one day, and perhaps it's closer than you think. So, 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Would you pray that way with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth that can be declared freely in this nation that you've given us. Thank you for our founding fathers who instituted the freedom of religion in this country and that we can proclaim your word without fear of someone storming in the door and forcing us out like King Ahaz did. God, we don't want to take that lightly. So I ask that you would not only bless us for our time having spent it here to study your word, but I ask for your blessing to rest upon this auditorium full of people who will go out the door and take boldness with them. Father, I ask that you would bless their boldness to speak freely of you, to proclaim what we know to be true. There is a king who reigns, and we will see him here one day. It's in his mighty name we praise you and thank you. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.